Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week is Part 2 of the JCT Minorworks contract. Today's episode meets PC5 of the Part 3 criteria. So today on the Part 2 of the JCT Minorworks contract, uh, I will be covering uh, control of the works, sums properly due, contract and certification, indemnity and insurance, termination and dispute resolution. And last week uh, we covered how the contract is formed, the contractor's obligations and commencement and completion. So diving straight into today's episode, um, let's look at control of the works. So the day-to-day control of the works, such as managing site operations, coordination of orders and supplies and so on, are entirely the responsibility of the contractor. So the contractor is required to keep a competent person in charge on site at all times to receive any instructions given by the contract administrator and to act as the contractor's agent on site. Now, in terms of the contract administrator's responsibility under the contract and the control the role has over the works is to supply the necessary information, issue instructions and certificates or notices. So their key powers include approving the contractor's proposals to deal with inconsistency in the contractor's design portion documents. This is under the minor works contract with contractor's design only. They are also responsible for instructing that defects can remain. Uh, They consent to the contractor subcontracting the works or any contractor design. They issue written instructions to the contractor. They instruct variations, including additions to or omissions from the works and the order or period in which they are to be carried out. They also agree the price of variations with the contractor before they are carried out. They exclude employed persons from the site. They issue a payless notice on behalf of the employer. Give the contractor notice of defaults. Their role also includes issuing any further information necessary, issuing all certificates, correcting inconsistencies between uh, the contract documents, granting extensions of time as reasonable, certifying practical completion, notifying the contractor of defects, also certifying that defects have been made good, confirming instructions in writing. They should endeavour to agree value variation with the contractor. They value variation instructions. They ascertain the amount of direct loss um, and issue instructions regarding expenditure sums. They issue interim certificates and the final certificate. And they also uh, issue reinstatement certificates regarding insurance monies to be paid to the contractor. They are also to work collaboratively with other team members and establish a working environment where health and safety is of paramount concern. And the contract administrator also confirms cost-saving measures in an instruction. So the key role contributing to the control and progress of the works is the clerk of works. Uh, 
There is no provision under the minor works contract for an independent clerk of works to be appointed. If the employer does decide to have one appointed, they should make this clear at tender stage. Now, in terms of subcontracted work, the contractor may only subcontract work with the written consent of the contract administrator for each stage of subletting. The JCT short form of subcontract can be used with the minor works contract when a contractor wishes to engage um, a subcontractor or the JCT minor works subcontract with uh, subcontractor design can be used. Although there is no obligation for these forms to be used, the contractor will have to give good reason for not using them. So the subcontract should provide that the subcontractor's employment must terminate immediately on termination of the contractor's employment and that the subcontract must comply with their CDM obligations. So the contract doesn't make any provisions for naming or nominating a subcontractor and if one is named in the tender documents, the contractor will remain entirely responsible for the performance of that subcontractor. And it should also be remembered that there is no JCT employer or specialist warranty for use with the minor works uh, contract with um, contractor's design. So in the event that the employer wishes to be able to hold the specialist subcontractor directly liable for this work, uh, there is no um, such specialty warranty enabling this. There are also no provisions whereby the employer may engage persons directly to carry out work that does not form part of the contract while the contractor is still carrying out the works on site. So if it's necessary, the specification would have to set out the requirements, uh, giving as much detail as possible about the nature and duration of the work and if it should differ from what has been set out, it could be grounds for an extension of time and other claims by the contractor. Now, in terms of CDM and health and safety, both the employer and the contractor are required to comply with the CDM regulations. And it's the employer's obligation under the contract to ensure that the principal designer and principal contractor carry out all the relevant duties under CDM. So the contract administrator has no duty under the minor works contract to check that the contractor is complying with health and safety requirements on site. The responsibility for ensuring that correct health and safety measures are employed on site rests with the contractor. So the contractor as principal contractor may be required by the principal designer to provide information in relation to the health and safety file However, the minor works contract doesn't uh, contain expressed uh, provisions for as-built drawings. If these are needed, the specific requirements should be set out in the specification or the schedules within the contract. Now, under the minor work contract with contractor's design, the contractor is required to provide the contract administrator with copies of drawings or details, uh, specifications for materials, goods and workmanship and related calculations and information as are reasonably necessary to explain the contractor's design portion and the contractor may not start any works until after seven days from the date the information has been supplied to the contract administrator. So there are no provisions to deal with any comments the contract administrator might wish to make on the information. 
although this doesn't prevent the contract administrator from commenting and the contractor is not obliged to incorporate the comments. But if an agreement can't be reached on matters raised, the contract administrator may need to instruct a variation to the contractor's design portion. So essentially, if the contractor isn't listening or um, exploring the recommendations by the contract administrator, they can just issue a variation to instruct them to do so. Now, in terms of inspections, uh, under the minor works contract, the contract administrator doesn't have a duty to inspect the work at regular intervals like other contract forms do. However, the contract administrator does have an obligation to the employer, and this typically does include a duty to inspect. So a contract administrator will not necessarily be liable to the employer for negligent inspection if a defect in a contractor's work is not identified. But the question here will be whether the contract administrator exhibited the degree of skill that an ordinary competent professional would exhibit in the same circumstances. So generally, the extent and frequency of inspections must enable the contract administrator to be in a position to properly certify that the construction work has been carried out in accordance with the contract. So though the contract doesn't necessarily have specific provisions for this to be done, obviously it's best practice to do so, and the contract administrator needs to uphold their duty to the employer. So as previously mentioned earlier in the episode, the contract administrator has the power to issue instructions and the instructions should only come from them. If the employer gives an instruction other than through the contract administrator, this would be of no effect under the contract and the contractor would be under no obligation to comply with any such instruction. However, if the contractor does carry out the instruction, a court might consider that there had been an agreed amendment to the contract, but the consequences would be difficult to sort out in practice and the employer would be very unwise to risk uh, something like this happening. So the contract administrator's instructions include acceptance of defective work, changes in the contractor's uh, design portion or the works, expenditure of provisional sums, and exclusion of persons from the works. So all of the contract administrator's instructions should be provided in writing, most commonly using the forms published by um, RIBA Publishing or MBS Contract Administrator. So the contractor must then comply with every instruction. If they fail to do so, the employer may employ and pay others to carry out that work. So the contract administrator must have given notice to the contractor requiring compliance of the instruction and seven days must have uh, passed after the contractor's receipt of the notice before the employer may bring in others to do the work. Now, if the contractor believes that the contract administrator's instruction might not be as per the contract, they can raise the matter in adjudication and any additional costs incurred by the employer to carry out the work using others are to be deducted from the contract sum. Now, in terms of variations, under common law, either party to a contract has the power to alter any of the items stated within the contract, unless the contract provides that variations can be made. So under the minor works contract, the contract administrator has the power to order variations 
but doesn't have the power to alter the nature of the contract itself. So all variations may result in an adjustment of the contract sum and give rise to a claim for an extension of time and direct loss in or expense. So the contract administrator may vary the works and add or omit work or substitute one type of work for another. Although there is no specific provision in the minor works contract, it seems likely that the contract administrator could order removal of work already carried out. So the contract administrator can also order variations affecting the sequence of work. And under the minor works contract with contractor's design, the contract administrator can also instruct a change to the employer's requirements, resulting in an alteration to the design of the contractor's design portion works. Now, changes to materials and workmanship also constitute a variation. However, where the standard achieved appears to be unsatisfactory, the contract administrator should be careful and not confuse who is ultimately responsible for the works, which is the contractor, although they could politely draw the contractor's attention to the areas of defective or poor quality work. Of course, the contractor should not be paid for any defective work, and if there does appear to be insufficient incentive, then the contract administrator may instruct that the work is carried out in accordance with the contract. So this allows the employer to employ others to carry out the work, should the contractor refuse to comply, provided a notice is given, as mentioned uh, previously. So in the scenario, however, where the contractor insists that the work was correctly carried out, then this dispute might have to be taken to adjudication. Now, the contract doesn't expressly give the contract administrator the power to accept defective work or instruct that it remains, except during the rectification period. However, the same effect could be achieved by issuing a variation instruction that effectively lowers the standard of work set out in the contract documents. The contract administrator, however, shouldn't instruct as such without the employer's consent. This is very crucial and this should be recorded in writing. Because if defective work is minor and the employer decides to accept it, the party should agree on any deduction to be made before the defective work is accepted. Of course, the contract administrator should strongly advise the employer against accepting any defective work that could later cause technical problems or be a source of irritation. Now, if the contract administrator wishes to have tests carried out, then the cost of these would be borne by the employer unless special provisions have been set out in the contract documents as the minor works contract has no provision for testing or opening up work. Now, during the rectification period, the contractor is required to make good any defects, shrinkages or other faults to the works which appear during the rectification period. This is stated to be three months in the contract particulars although a different period can be inserted if required, and a longer period tends to be advised. So within that period, the contractor has the right to return to site to remedy any defects, and although this ceases at the end of the three-month period, the contractor's liability for defective materials or workmanship continues through the statutory limitation period. Now, under the minor works contract, the contract administrator is required to notify the contractor of the existence of defects within 14 days 
of the end of the rectification period. And this can be in a written format, simply informing the contractor that defects have appeared and their general nature. And the responsibility will then be with the contractor to identify and make good or defective work. So once satisfied that the contractor's obligations have been discharged, the contract administrator must then issue a certificate to that effect. And the certificate is a precondition to the issue of the final certificate. The contract, however, doesn't state what should happen in respect of defects that appear after the issue of the certificate, but before the issue of the final certificate. In such instances, either an agreement should be made with the contractor to rectify the defects before the final certificate is issued. If the contractor were to refuse to do this, an amount could be deducted from the contract sum to cover the cost of making good the work, but this might involve some risk to the employer, or the employer can have the defective work uh, rectified by another contractor and deduct the amount paid from the contract sum. So this would involve a delay to the issue of the final certificate and would probably be disputed by the contractor. So that covers the control of the works. Now let's look at sums properly due. So the minor works contract allows for the contract sum to incorporate the cost of variations as the works progress. It also allows for the direct loss and or expenses due to any resulting disruption and for costs and expenses due to suspension. If supplemental provision three is included within the contract, then the contractor may propose savings that result in an adjustment to the contract sum. So the form can also take into account fluctuations or it can be operated literally as a fixed price contract, meaning the contract sum will not change unless variations occur or provisional sums are included. VAT is also not included in the contract sum. Now, if sufficient information can't be provided at the time of tender to allow the contractor to price an item, then a provisional sum may be included in the tender documents to cover it. So the contract administrator must uh, instruct regarding all work covered by provisional sums. A key item to note here is that a provisional sum is different to a prime cost. Um, which refers to a price that has been ascertained in advance of requesting tenders from a specialist supplier or subcontractor. Prime cost sums are unlikely to be applicable to a minor works contract. Now, when the contract administrator is evaluating a variation, they should endeavour to agree a price with the contractor in advance of the work being carried out. And the contract administrator should also ensure the price is confirmed with the employer before agreeing to it. Now, direct loss and or expense claims should also be included in the amount of a variation. And this is the only instance in the minor works contract where the contract administrator may make um, such an award. If the contractor suffers losses not related to a variation, these might have to be referred to dispute resolution proceedings unless some agreement can be reached. So direct loss and or expense refers to losses suffered as a result of delay or disruption uh, consequent upon the variation, excluding, of course, the direct cost of carrying out the relevant work. So in ascertaining loss and expense, the contract administrator must determine what has actually been suffered. 
So the sums awarded can include any loss or expense that has arisen directly as a result of the variation. And in assessing the amount of damages, the objective is to put the contractor back into the position in which they would have been if the disturbance didn't occur. And the contractor is to be able to show that they have taken reasonable steps to mitigate their loss. So applications by or claims from the contractor must be dealt with according to the proceedings contained in the contract and failure to certify an amount properly due will not prevent recovery and could leave the employer liable in damages for breach of contract. Now let's move on to the next section which is certification. So under the minor works contract the contract administrator has a duty to certify sums properly due to the contractor including valuations and issuing certificates. Failure to exercise this duty with care and skill can amount to negligence on the contract administrator's part. So best practice would be for the contract administrator to issue the certificate to the employer with a copy to the contractor at the same time. So the procedure to be used should be established at the outset, either by setting it out in the contract documents or agreeing it at a pre-contract meeting. So looking at interim payments, in the first instance, a payment is made by the employer to the contractor after the issue of the certificates by the contract administrator. These are then to be issued within five days of the due date, which then relates to the interim valuation date, which are entered into the contract particulars. So the first one should be no later than one month after the works commence uh, on site and then at monthly intervals after that. So the minor works contract makes no provision for advance payment to the main contractor, nor for payment on commencement of the works. If required, this should uh, be allowed for and amended in the contract terms. Now in terms of the payment, the contract administrator is responsible for determining the value of the interim payment. This task can be delegated to um, a quantity surveyor. And under the minor works contract, the contractor has the right to make an application for payment, stating the amount they consider to be due. And then the contract administrator needs to make an independent assessment if the sum uh, to be paid is the sum stated within the contractor's uh, application. So the interim payment should include the value of the work properly executed and the value of materials and goods properly brought into site, adequately stored and protected, and the value of the work will be calculated using the prices and rates shown in the specification or schedules or the contractor's schedule of rates. No provision is to be made for off-site materials, goods or prefabricated items. So then the interim payment should also take into account any relevant variations and adjustments due to instructions relating to provisional sums and any costs and expense due to suspension. From this then the total amount stated is due under previous certificates, any amount paid as a consequence of a contractor's payment notice issued since the last certificate and any amounts deductible due to acceptance of defective work should be deducted. And then the total amount will be subject to a percentage reduction, which is a retention. So then the contract administrator should only certify 
after having carried out an inspection to a reasonable diligence standard. The contract doesn't set a date, but normally the certificate should include for work carried out up to seven days before the date of the certificate. And the contract administrator shouldn't include any work that appears to not have been properly executed. If work included in a certificate appears to be defective after payment has been made, the value can be omitted from the next certificate. Then once the interim payment is certified, the final date for payment is 14 uh, days from the due date. If the employer intends to withhold any amount from the sum certified, the employer or the contract administrator must give the contractor written notice of this no later than five days before the final date for payment, which is known as the uh, payless notice. And they should set out the sum the employer considers is due to the contractor at the date the notice is given and the basis on which that sum has been calculated. Now, in the case where no certificate is issued, if the contractor has already issued an application for payment, then this becomes a payment notice or they can issue the payment notice at any time after the issue um, date has passed to the contract administrator. Then the employer must pay the contractor the sum shown as due on the payment notice, subject to any pay less notice. If the employer for any reason disagrees with the amount shown on the payment notice, then they must issue a notice explaining this intention. Now the minor works contract allows the employer to deduct liquidated damages from certified amounts, provided the correct notices are issued, and the employer would therefore be unable to withhold amounts to cover any defective work included in a certificate, unless the deduction is covered by a notice. So the minor works contract includes a number of provisions protecting the contractor if the employer fails to pay the amounts due. One is that Interest is applied on late payment of interim and final certificates. The contractor is also given the right of suspension as required by the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act if the employer fails to pay the contractor by the final date for payment. If, however, a notice to withhold payment has been given by the employer, then the contractor can't suspend work and they must give the employer written notice of their intent to suspend work and the grounds for doing so. Then, once payment has been made, the contractor must resume work. Then, after practical completion, the minor works contract allows for certificates to continue to be issued at the same monthly intervals up until the final payment. Following practical completion, the amount should be for 97.5% of the total amount due to the contractor under the contract unless a different percentage was inserted in the contract particulars. And half of the retention would also be released to the contractor. Then by the final certificate, the interim payment certificates at monthly intervals would have been issued. The practical completion certificate should also have been issued alongside the interim payment certificates following practical completion, including release of half of the retention and the certificate of making good. To determine the amount of the final certificate, the contractor must send the information required within three months of the date of practical completion 
certified by the contract administrator and the due date for final uh, payment is 28 days after either the date of receipt of the do documentation required or if later the date specified in the certificate. The contract administrator must then issue the final certificate within five days of the due date, stating the basis of the calculation and the amount remaining to the contractor. Then, uh, under the minor works contract, the final certificate is not conclusive evidence that any obligations under the contract have been discharged, unlike other JCT forms. But it should be highlighted that although neither the final certificate nor any other certificate is stated to be conclusive, there may remain a very limited area where it would be difficult to raise a challenge. So although in theory the certificate could be challenged, there would be no means by which it could be proved the contractor was in breach. So technically, they would, in essence, be conclusive evidence. So that covers certification. Let's move on to indemnity and insurance. So under the Minor Works contract, it provides for the contractor to indemnify the employer in respect of certain losses such as injury to persons or damage to neighbouring property caused by the contractor's negligence. And this indemnity protects the employer in that if an injured party brings an action against the employer rather than against the contractor, the contractor has agreed to carry the consequences of that claim. So the contract allows provision for three different types of insurances that can be taken out. The first one is for use with new buildings with no existing structures and is taken out by the contractor and is to be in joint names. The insurance should also be for the full reinstatement value of the works. Then the second type is for use with existing buildings where the policy will cover the new works and existing structure and is taken out by the employer. This is also to be in joint names against damage due to specified perils and the employer will also take out a joint names or risks policy to cover the works. And then the third is where neither of the other two options are appropriate and the parties agree their own insurance arrangements and set it out in the contract particulars. So in any insurance provision taken out, both parties must be able to provide reasonable evidence within seven days of a request that the insurances have actually been taken out and the cover chosen must run until practical completion of the works or termination. Now, in the event that the employer can't obtain the second mention insurance against uh, existing structures, the parties will need to make special arrangements under the third option. Then, where the employer is the freeholder, the employer insures the works under joint names and continues with their own existing structures policy, and the contractor will insure themselves against damage to existing structures. Alternatively, the contractor insures the works under the first insurance option mentioned, together with the existing structure, by extending their works insurance policy. If the employer, however, is not a freeholder, then the JCT recommends that the parties take specialist advice and liaise with the freehold and their insurers. Now, the minor works contract makes no provision for terrorism cover or for compliance with the Joint Fire Code, 
nor does it include provisions for insurance against damage caused to property, which is not the result of the negligence of the contractor. Now, in respect of the contractor's liability relating to personal injury or death of employees, this liability is met by the employer's liability policy. This has been compulsory since the Employer's Liability Compulsory Insurance Act. The legal minimum level of cover for most firms is 5 million, but many insurers will provide a 10 million policy as standard. Now, in terms of the contractor's liability in respect of third parties, this is met by their public liability policy. Now, when it comes to damage to the property, the minimum figure for which the contractor is required to take out insurance cover should be entered in the contract particulars and is typically unlikely to be less than 2 million. And the contractor is only liable to the extent that the damage is caused by uh, negligence or breach of statutory duty or other default of the contractor or their person and is only liable for losses caused by their own negligence. If any damage occurs to the works, the contractor is required to inform the contract administrator and the employer, as well as the insurers, and the contractor is required to authorize the insurers to pay all monies under the works insurance policy direct to the employer. Where the damage to the works and site materials is covered by the works insurance policy, and after any inspection required has been made uh, by the insurers, the contractor is then obliged to make good the damage and continue with the works. In the case where the second insurance policy is taken out by the employer or the employer has affected the works insurance policy under the third insurance option or where loss is caused by an expected risk, the contract administrator must issue instructions regarding the rebuilding of the work, which is treated as if it were a variation and will be paid for under the normal interim certificates. The contract administrator is less at risk as the employer will have to bear any shortfall in the monies paid out and as work is treated as a variation, the contractor may be entitled to loss and or expense and an extension of time. Now the minor works contract also contains provisions enabling either party to terminate the employment of the contractor in the event that work is suspended for a period of one month or more as a result of loss or damage to the works caused by any risk covered by the works insurance policy or by an accepted risk. So that covers indemnity and insurance. Now let's look at the termination process under the contract. So the minor works contract provides the employer with the right to terminate the contractor's employment in the event of specified defaults by the contractor prior to practical completion, such as suspending the carrying out of the works, or in the event of insolvency of the contractor, or in the event of corruption, or in the case of the minor works contract with contractor's design, the design of the contractor's design portion failing to proceed uh, regularly or diligently with either of these and breach of the CDM regulations. So upon termination, the contractor must immediately leave the site and the employer doesn't need to make any further payment until the works are complete and may recover any losses resulting from the termination from the contractor. 
Unlike the standard building contract and intermediate contracts, the minor works contract has no provision for repeat defaults. In terms of insolvency uh, of the contractor more specifically, under the minor works contract, the employer has the right to terminate the contractor's employment in the event of insolvency, but they also have a few other options they may choose to consider. So the employer can either terminate the contractor's employment and appoint a new contractor to complete the works, or they can allow the original contractor to come up with a rescue package, or if the original contractor can't continue, another contractor may be novated to complete the works under a true novation or conditional novation. On a true novation, the substitute contractor takes over all the original obligations and benefits uh, of the original contractor, whereas under a conditional novation, whereby the contract completion date um, and so on would be subject to renegotiation and the substitute contractor would probably want to disclaim liability for the parts of the work undertaken by the original contractor, which is the most likely option. So following termination, the employer may employ others to complete the work and may use any temporary buildings, equipment um, and other measures on the site for that purpose and no further sums will become due to the contractor under the contract. This relief from the obligation to make payments already due applies in only two circumstances. Firstly, if the employer has already issued a payless notice or if the contractor has become insolvent after the last date by which a payless notice could have been issued. Now, termination can also be initiated by the contractor in the event of specified defaults by the employer, such as failure to pay the amount due on the certificate or causing the work to be suspended for a period of um, more than one month or due to employer insolvency or if they fail to comply with the requirements of the CDM regulations. So if the contractor wishes to terminate their employment, they must first issue a notice which must specify the default complained of and require it to be ended, this warning is sent to the employer and if the default is not ended within seven days of receipt of the notice, the contractor may then by further notice or within 10 days from the expiry of the seven day notice, terminate their employment and termination takes effect on the date of receipt of the notice. So upon termination, the contractor prepares an account setting out the total value of the work at the date of termination, plus other costs relating to the termination. This account is then submitted to the employer, and the employer must pay the amount properly due within 28 days of its submission. Termination can also be initiated by either party in the event of natural causes that might cause the work to be suspended for a period of one month or more. One of the listed neutral events is loss or damage caused by any risk covered by the works insurance policy or by an accepted risk. And in such an event, the contractor may not issue a notice where the damage has been caused by the negligence of the contractor. And last but not least, let's look at the last section of the contract, which is dispute resolution. So the minor works contract lists negotiation, mediation, adjudication, arbitration and legal proceedings as the means by which any dispute may be 
determined. The parties are required to decide in advance which of the processes will be used and make the relevant deletions uh, to the articles. So it's important for the contract administrator to understand the options and to be able to give appropriate advice. Either party has the right to refer any dispute or difference to adjudication as stated within the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act, which applies to all construction contracts. So the minor works contract, however, may well be used in situations which come within the exceptions set out in Section 106 of the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act, which states that the Act does not apply to a construction contract with a residential occupier. In such cases, there will be no statutory right to adjudication, but unless the parties indicate otherwise, adjudication will still be a contractual right. So final determination of any dispute or difference will be by means of arbitration. If the parties, however, prefer to use arbitration, this must be indicated in the contract particulars, otherwise the dispute will be resolved by litigation. Any dispute is better to be first approached using negotiation or adopting some voluntary method of agreement before formal proceedings are chosen. So the minor works contract includes for mediation to be used, uh, as unlike adjudication, arbitration or litigation, mediation is a non-adversarial process which tends to forge good relationships between the parties. Now, if mediation fails, then the parties can revert to adjudication, arbitration or litigation. Under adjudication, the adjudicator may either be named in the contract particulars or nominated by the nominating body. The party wishing to refer the dispute to adjudication, they must first give notice identifying the dispute or difference, give details of where and when it has arisen, set out the nature of the redress sought and include the names and addresses of the parties. Then the adjudicator appointed is required to act impartially and to avoid unnecessary expense. The adjudicator also will then set out the procedure to be followed and a preliminary meeting may be held to discuss this. Otherwise, the adjudicator may send the procedure and timetable to both parties. So the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act requires that the decision is reached within 28 days of referral and parties will have to meet their own costs unless the adjudicator has the power to award costs. So then the adjudicator's decision will be final and binding until the dispute is finally determined by legal proceedings, arbitration or agreement between the parties. If either party doesn't agree with the decision, they can raise the dispute again in arbitration or litigation. If arbitration is followed, the arbitrator has power derived from a written agreement between the parties uh, to a contract and is subject to the Arbitration Act. Arbitration awards are enforceable by law and can be subject to appeal on limited grounds. So the party wishing to refer the dispute to arbitration must give notice uh, identifying briefly the dispute and requiring the party to agree to the appointment of an arbitrator. If they fail to agree within 14 days, either party may then apply to the appointer selected in the contract particulars. 
The arbitrator then has the right and duty to decide all procedural matters, subject to the party's right to agree any matter. Within 14 days of their appointment, the parties must each send the arbitrator and each other a note indicating the nature of the dispute and amounts uh, in issue, the estimated length of the hearing and the procedures to be followed. The arbitrator must then hold a preliminary meeting within 21 days of uh, their appointment to discuss the matters at hand and the first decision is whether a short hearing, documents only or a full procedure is to apply. Under the documents process, the arbitrator makes the award based on the documentary evidence only. Under the full procedure process, the arbitrator will hold a hearing where the parties or their representatives can put forward further arguments and evidence. And under the hearing process, a hearing is held within 21 days of the date when the process is chosen and the parties must exchange documents not later than seven days prior to the hearing. And then the arbitrator publishes the award within one month of the hearing. Costs under arbitration normally are based on whoever wins and the losing party pays and the proceedings are kept private, unlike litigation. If litigation is chosen, proceedings are usually initiated by the claimant filling a claim at the appropriate county court. The court will then allocate the case to a track, depending on its size and complexity. A judge will then hear the case, and although in the past parties were required to be uh, represented by barristers, now they may represent themselves or elect to be represented by an advisor. In the court, the proceedings are open to the public and the press, and the judgment is published and widely available. So that covers the full extent of the Minor Works contract uh, and hopefully gives you a good overview of what the contract is about and what it consists of. Uh, and to quickly sum up what I discussed today, the day-to-day -day control of the works are entirely the responsibility of the contractor, the contract administrator's responsibilities under the contract and the control the role has over the works is to supply the necessary information, issue instructions and certificates or notices. Under the Minor Works contract with contractor's design, the contractor is required to provide the contract administrator with copies of drawings or details, specifications of for materials, goods and workmanship and related calculations and information as are reasonably necessary to explain the contractor's design portion. Under the Minor Works contract, the contract administrator has the power to order variations, but doesn't have the power to alter the nature of the contract. All variations may result in an adjustment of the contract sum and give rise to a claim for an extension of time and direct loss and or expense. The Minor Works contract allows for the contract sum to incorporate the cost of variations as the works progress and for the direct loss and or expenses uh, due to any resulting disruption and for costs and expenses due to suspension. The contract administrator has a duty to certify sums properly due to the contractor, including valuations and issuing certificates. Uh, the final certificate is not conclusive evidence that any obligations under the contract have been discharged, unlike other JCT forums.
The contract allows provisions for three different types of insurances that can be taken out. One is for use with new buildings with no existing structures taken out by the contractor. The second is for use with existing buildings and is taken out by the employer. And the third is used where neither of the other two options are appropriate and the parties agree their own insurance uh, arrangements and is set out in the contract particulars. The employer has the right to terminate the contractor's employment in the event of specified defaults by the contractor prior to practical completion and the contractor can also initiate termination in the event of specified defaults by the employer. And lastly, the minor works contract lists negotiation, mediation, adjudication, arbitration and legal proceedings as the means by which any disputes may be determined and the parties are required to decide in advance which of the processes will be used and make relevant deletions to the articles as necessary. So that covers uh, everything when it comes to the minor works contract and that concludes today's episode. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more part three with me time.